Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we know that you shape your people into the likeness of your son. We have seen that through this book of Romans, chapters five through eight. We know it in our own lives for those of us who've come to faith in Christ. And we know that you shape us in this way through the mountains and the valleys of our Christian experience. And yet, when we have a certain perspective on life that you give us the endurance that we need for the task. And so I pray today that you would alter our perspective, that you would enhance our vision for life, that you would fix our gaze on the horizon line and that as a result, we would persevere well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. What does the Christian hope for? If you're here today and you're a Christian, what do you hope for? I wonder if you have ever thought about that or I wonder how you would answer the question. Now, if I asked you what is the source of your hope, I anticipate that many of you would say, my hope is sourced or grounded in the person of Jesus, in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of my sins. That's the source of my hope. But what do you hope for? What do you hope will happen? You see, throughout Romans chapters 5 through 8, we've been looking at this process that God uses to remake people. And if you're here today and you are far, far away from God, then the good news is that if you draw near to him through faith in Jesus, he promises, no matter where you've been or what you've done, he promises to remake you. If you're here today and you don't like who you've become or what you've become, know, know that God can remake you. If you're here today and you feel hopeless, know that God can give you hope through his son Jesus and in doing so he will remake you. Through the work of Jesus, we've seen in Romans 5 through 8 that God forgives our sins, he justifies us, that means he gives us a righteous standing before him. We're united to Jesus as he does that and he transfers us from the realm of sin and death to the realm of life and grace and righteousness and peace. And through the power of his spirit, that he gives us power to resist sin and to have a new life. This is the process that God uses to remake you. And we've seen, in some ways, a chronological progression, haven't we, over the last number of months together. We've seen our past status. We've seen the struggle in the present reality. And today, in Romans chapter 8, we're going to look forward to the future glory. What does the Christian hope for? Well, let's read Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 18 together. 
If you haven't opened your Bible yet, Romans 8, starting at verse 18 through 25. A great passage of encouragement for you as you go along the path. This is what it says. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What does the Christian hope for? The Christian hopes for the resurrection of our body. (laughs) Paul, right in the middle of this passage, in verse 23, points to what we hope for. He says in verse 23 and 24 that not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. You were saved in hope for the redemption of your body someday. That is what you want to happen. And so he begins this section with this verse, sort of a theme verse that you could consider even a life verse for some of us. Verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us someday. (laughs) What will happen to us someday? The redemption of our bodies. And of course, this begs the question of a more precise examination of what does he mean by present sufferings and what does he mean by future glory? And he displays that the first is an implication for all creation with regard to present suffering, And then the second is for the Christian himself or for herself. And if you begin to understand these things that Romans 8, 18 through 25 teach us, if you believe them to be true, then on the big picture of your life, it will alter the way that you look at the events of human history, both ecologically speaking but also personally speaking. It will alter the way that you look at the events of the course of history because right now, Paul is addressing for the Christian a present reality that is moving toward a future or eternal reality. And he starts with the present reality 
that creation itself reveals frustration as it groans. Look with me at verse 20. Paul says that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. The current state of creation is not what it's supposed to be. You can see that to be true. You look around, you see that despite the beauty of creation and the wonders of the land, that something still just isn't quite right. And so when Paul talks about creation being subjected to futility, we all know, we all have a sort of internal sense that this is true, and yet he's clearly referring to Genesis chapter 3 and the contrast between a creation that was the way that it was supposed to be in the Garden of Eden, a perfect picture of God's goodness, and as sin enters the world, the creation was cursed, and as a result, everything was made harder. Remember with me, Genesis chapter 3. It says in verse 17 that God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. And so sin comes into the world and it not only mars the perfect image of God and humankind, but it mars the inherent goodness of God in the planet in which he creates. And so things get harder. Crops are harder to grow. We're regularly trying to manipulate our food source. Parts of creation are completely unable to sustain life because of extreme temperatures or the lack of producing land. Wildfires seem to rip through the western United States almost yearly now. And in one sense, this is a natural process. But in another sense, we know as we watch that happen that something just isn't quite right. A hurricane wipes out multiple islands in the Atlantic this fall and it claims many lives. A sinkhole appears in Florida in the spring of 2013, and it completely swallows a man's bedroom into the depths of the earth. He was sleeping in his bed at the time, and as a result, his family never saw him again. Pastor Kyle's dog that he rescued from a shelter bites the neighbor's dog with no apparent reason attached to it. A mountain lion stalks the hiker. The shark attacks the surfer. A hippopotamus charges a boat with fishermen in it in Africa, killing two of them. Now all of these things can be explained meteorologically, geologically, ecologically. And many of those explanations are indeed valid as they help us understand the order of things from down here, from here 
on the ground. But the big picture, theologically, helps us to understand how all of these things function together toward their created end. And that is found in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Something isn't quite right. And creation groans. Now, I love that expression. Creation subjected to futility is groaning in childbirth. You might even say it's pregnant with meaning. It is that painful period before the glorious new life appears. Now, I wouldn't know, but I've witnessed it up close and personal three times. And I have it on pretty good authority that some of the most difficult pain a person can go through in life is that pain of childbirth. And part of the reason why it's so difficult is because the pain is cyclical in its nature. It keeps coming back around again. And when you get a reprieve, the next contraction is around the corner. It's also increasing in its frequency, meaning as the cycle continues that it happens more and more frequently. And finally, it increases its intensity, meaning that it gets more and more painful. But the pain is all leading up to the glorious birth of the child. And so creation, Paul writes, is experiencing this type of pain. And from a 50,000 foot view of human history, it explains how all the individual events relate to the larger trajectory of human history. All of this pain is leading up to a glorious birth. And verse 19 says that creation is awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. And verse 20 says that creation will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The gospel that through Jesus' work on the cross, not only people are redeemed, but all creation is redeemed as well. Creation itself has that day in view. It looks to the horizon of history and it hopes and it waits and while it does, it groans. And verse 23 says that it's not just creation that groans. Because we know we know that God's work is not complete in us, Christian, and so we groan. Look with me at verse 23 again. We read it a moment ago. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, it says. 
Now, this groaning that he refers to for humans is not external complaining. <laughs> Some of us might use the word groaning as thinking, about, oh, stop groaning. That's not the type of groaning he's talking about. This type of groaning is not sort of an ongoing anxiety in fear or trepidation about what will happen next. What Paul is saying here, the groaning that Christians experience is, is kind of like an internal sigh as we continue to endure the physical and moral difficulty and even sickness until our glorification is complete. The groaning is in recognition of the fact that we're still pretty weak, aren't we? And so we groan. And Paul says that we groan as those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. And what he's saying is that the Spirit functions to give us that initial fruit of our salvation. We know that to be true. We've seen it in Romans 5. The Spirit functions to give us a righteous standing. In the first part of Romans 8, that the Holy Spirit comes into our life and gives us the power to conquer sin in our life or to overcome it. And so we groan because we have the Spirit. Once the Spirit of God enters into your life, demands holiness from us, gives us the desires for the things of God, convicts us of our sin, empowers us to accomplish the things of God, we gain in ourselves a sense of who God actually wants us to be. <laughs> and at the same time, the Spirit increases our frustration that we are not the person yet that God fully wants us to be. And therefore, we wait, it says in Romans 8, for the redemption of our body. We're rescued from the body of sin and death, and we look forward to a glorious future. And so as verse 23 says, that part of this redemption of the body is a coinciding of eagerly awaiting as adopted or for adoption as sons of God. Now, to be a child of God is, is an incredible thing. And we talked about last week how people use that term pretty loosely. Everybody's a children of God, but we see actually in the Bible that although everyone is created in God's image, that not everybody is actually a child of God. You become a child of God through faith in Jesus, and that, that mark of being a child of God is displayed outwardly in a variety of ways. But think about it for a minute. Think about the connotation again with me. We talked about it just a week ago of being adopted as a son or daughter of God, of being considered one of the children of the greatest being in the history of Forever. <laughs> the one who has all riches at his disposal. The one who encapsulates perfect righteousness. The one who expresses perfect love. The one who gives 
bountiful gifts to his children and the one who gives an eternal inheritance. You, Christian, are a child of God. Adopted. And if adopted, an heir. And if an heir, a co-heir with his son, Jesus Christ. And so elsewhere we see in the Bible, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, hear this for your encouragement. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In 2 Corinthians 6, 18, and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. And Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In 1 John chapter 3, to help us understand what does it look like to be a son of God, it says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Or, first, or John 1.12, but for all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so at this point, some of you are asking, no doubt, why does Paul say that we are eagerly awaiting our adoption as sons of God in verse 23, when just the previous section, he says that we're already children of God through faith. We've been given a spirit of adoption. We're called sons of God already and co-heirs with Jesus. And what you see here is this classic New Testament tension of the already but the not yet. We see this dynamic again and again in God's remaking work in the life of a Christian. Already things are happened and they're not yet complete. And so, yes, you are a child of God. Justified in Jesus, if you have faith in him. Yes, you are reconciled to God, and yes, you're brought into his family. But we are not yet children of God in the way that we will be in eternity. The inheritance is still waiting for us, and we have not yet fully possessed it. And so we groan. And so we wait. And we groan. Waiting until the day that the adoption is made complete. And this is synonymous, verse 23 tells us, with the redemption of our bodies that God himself will give us new, eternal bodies forever. There was a fascinating article in the Wall Street Journal a couple weeks ago that asked the question, what is the perfect age? And depending upon what age you are in the room, I'm sure that you would answer the question differently. And what do you mean by that? Do you mean what is the perfect age for your physical body or for your happiness or conception of happiness or for your intellectual ability or for your wisdom or for your experience? What is the perfect age? 
I don't know. (laughs) I wonder what age your body will be. The new perfect one that you'll receive someday. Have you ever thought about that? Try to think about that while you're trying to fall asleep tonight. It's a glorious thought, isn't it? That because I'm a child of God, that my body will one day be redeemed. Revelation chapter 21 gives us a picture of it. We read it in our call to worship today. It says in verse 4 that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, that we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so, upon the completion of our adoption and the redemption of our bodies, we will find great joy in what we've been hoping for. But that hasn't happened yet. And so we groan. We groan all the way to glory. And we are not yet who we will become. And that can be really hard. And so you might say that hope of future glory gives us strength to endure the present, doesn't it? That the promises of God, the hope of future glory, when we see them, when we know them, when we understand them, when we hold tightly to them, that the hope of future glory actually gives us strength to endure the present. And that word hope is a funny thing, isn't it? I'm not talking about the sort of flimsy hope that we use all the time. I'm not talking about like the hope I win the lottery someday type of hope. Or the I hope my brother gives me one of his tickets to the Super Bowl next weekend type of hope. That the New England Patriots are playing in. Again. That type of hope is a fool's hope. That somebody would give you such a thing or that you might win such a thing with no real consequence attached to it. No, no, no. This hope that he's talking about is a hope that has an immovable source. God himself. And it's a hope that's grounded in a historical event. The death of and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And it's based on a promise, this hope, the promise that whoever puts their faith in him, they will become his children someday. And if his children someday, then they will have a redeemed body someday. And verse 24 tells us very clearly that it's in this type of hope that you are actually saved. 
It's not a silly hope. It's confidence in the eternal promises of God himself. And all of the aspects of subhuman creation have this built-in hope. And Christians, you Christians, live by this hope even in the midst of present sufferings. And this hope provides you with motivation for your perseverance in faith and godliness. You might even say that hope of future glory gives you strength to endure the present, no matter how the present looks for you. You know, there's an old saying that in Germany, traditionally, there are two schools of thought. The industrial, practical, northern part of the country has this philosophy. The situation is serious, but not hopeless. And the southern part of the country, more romantic and perhaps less practical, the philosophy seems to be the situation is hopeless, but not that serious. You heard the contrast, right? The situation is serious, but it's not hopeless, versus the situation is hopeless, but it's really not that serious. I don't think that that idea or philosophy just encapsulates Germany. I fear that all too many people in Western culture today have adopted this second philosophy of life. That there's no ultimate answer and therefore there's no lasting hope. But you know what? It's not that bad right now. It's not that serious. And so we move forward. But we all know that even though the culture around us says this repeatedly, that that same culture, when faced with disease or addiction or bankruptcy or death, the idea of it not being that serious fades away almost immediately. But to have hope, even when it's hard, even when it's life or death, even when it's the most serious. This hope of future glory gives us strength to endure the present. Alexander the Great was setting out on his conquest of Asia and he inquired into the finances of his followers. And to ensure that they would not be troubled over the welfare of their dependents during their absence on the conquest, he distributed crown estates and revenues among them And when he had thus disposed of nearly all of his royal resources, his friend said to him, Alexander, what have you reserved for yourself? And his answer was hope. In that case, his friend said, we who share in your labors will also take part in your hopes. And they refused the estates allotted to them. It's this type of hope of future glory that the Apostle Peter had as he looked to the horizon line of life and boldly went out to proclaim the gospel even to the point of his own crucifixion in an upside-down manner. It's this hope 
vision of the horizon line that allows the apostle John to be boiled in a vat of oil and not renounce faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's this type of hope that allowed Martin Luther to stand trial for his beliefs in the Bible at the Diet of Worms in 1521 and to say in the face of death that unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God and I cannot and will not recant recant anything for to go against conscience is neither safe nor right. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, amen. It's hope that made George Mueller pursue the works of the orphanage. It's hope that allowed Dietrich Bonhoeffer to continue to disciple men and to preach the gospel in the churches of Germany under the Nazi regime, even though he had the opportunity to be anywhere else in the world. It's hope that causes men and women to forsake earthly comforts and to live on the mission field because they know that the time is short and the discomfort that they have right now pales in comparison to the eternal glory that will be revealed. It's hope that when your friends start to distance themselves from you because you don't want to do the same things that they do because of your faith and you feel all alone as a result of it, It's that hope that keeps you clinging to Jesus nevertheless. It's hope that fuels your perseverance in living for God when it feels like he's nowhere to be found. It's this hope, and this hope will not disappoint us. It's this hope that it's a gift of God and the source of strength in the most difficult trials of life. And when we're trapped in that sort of tunnel of our misery, hope points to the light at the end. Or when we're overworked and exhausted, hope gives us fresh energy. Or when we're discouraged, hope lifts our spirits. Or when we're tempted to quit, hope is the thing that keeps us going. Or when we watch our son go through brain surgery, it's hope that keeps us clinging to Christ for his provision. Or when we lose a spouse, it's hope in the future glory of the resurrected body that says, God, even though the most painful reality of life has come true to me in this very moment, I will not leave you nor forsake you. Just as he says to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I don't know what burdens you have today or what weight you carry. And I don't know the infirmity or the stress or the internal battle with sin that you've had throughout the course of this last week. I don't know the ways in which you internally groan while you wait. But I do know this, that when you look on the horizon line of history and you see the fact that your body will one day be fully redeemed by the God of eternity, then I know that our present struggles take a different light. Hope of the future glory gives us strength to endure the present. And may you endure it groaning 
all the way to that glory. Let's pray together. Father, we need perspective-altering words in our life. And we pray that our perspective today is indeed altered to the horizon line. That someday you will complete your work in us. And that while we wait, we endure patiently and persevere in the work that you have. We long for the day. We long for the day that our hope is fully realized. And we pray this to your glory in the name of our Savior Jesus, the source of our hope. Amen.